Turning your Bible, if you would please, to the little epistle of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, that's where we're going to be this morning. And just a couple of thoughts as you're, as you're turning, uh, some uh, missionary thoughts. We have uh, Brother Anders uh, Swanson with us today. He's uh, visiting there on his way to Florida, I believe it is. And uh, he's right, right back there, is, is Anders, and he's headed to Uganda. And so we can remember uh, him, uh, Brother Buddy Fitzgerald. Uh, I think you've been uh, following along uh, him. Many of you have. Our missionary down in Peru who just had, it was over in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil for a very serious surgery, a tumor in his spine that they've had removed. Things uh, were looking good with that. So uh, we thank the Lord um, um, for that. And then also uh, our missionary, Deneen Akers. Uh, she is uh, coming home on Thursday. Uh, she's been in Japan, you know, and she's coming home on Thursday for furlough, uh, Thursday evening, and her birthday is uh, Saturday, and Lord willing, she'll be back with us on Sunday, and we'll be here, of course, when she's not out in a, on a, uh, reporting to her churches, uh, so we can remember all of these, uh, of, of these uh, folks, and what Buddy and Loren are doing in, in uh, uh, Peru, and what Anders is uh, planning to do in Uganda, and what Deneen has been doing for a couple of decades now or more in uh, Japan is telling people that Jesus is not only the Savior, that he came to die for the sins of the world, but he's also coming back. And that is the great expectation that we have as believing people is that Jesus is returning. It's what Paul calls the blessed hope. It's the climax, if I could say it that way, of our salvation. It's a time for the redemption of believers, the final redemption there, and the judgment of all of God's enemies. The Lord coming back will begin the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, which is then followed by that new Jerusalem that the Apostle John saw coming down where believers will live with God for all of eternity. This is the great hope that you and I have, and it has been the heartbeat of the church. It has been the heartbeat of the early church, uh, particularly. In fact, the certainty of the Lord's return amongst the first century Christians, that was, they were so confident in that truth that they would greet one another with the word Maranatha. And you know what that word means. It means, Lord, come. Or come quickly. The thought of Jesus' return was not in any way a frightening experience to those who lived in the first century. It was rather something that they very eagerly anticipated the Lord Jesus returning. It would, it would, it would be the ultimate culmination of everything that they had believed. Now, the early church had been suffering a lot of outside persecution. People outside the church really uh, um, hindering uh, the work by the persecution of believers. And in the passage that we've turned to now, Peter is dealing with persecution and challenge and difficulty, not from outside the church, but from inside the church. There was a lot of turmoil that was created by some false teachers that were there. And Peter is writing here 
to set the record straight. And he's going to be talking about here, the passage is talking about the second coming of Christ. When you and I live as Christian people today in 2023, just like it has been in any generation, when you and I live with a certain knowledge that Jesus is coming back, and it might be today, that knowledge is going to affect the way that we live. It's going to increase our zeal for Christ as we serve him from day to day. It's going to increase our enthusiasm for the things of God. And that is not a pleasant thought to the devil. As you and I eagerly anticipate the Lord's return, and so that anticipation gives us focus and energizes us in our Christian walk today, that is not a comforting thought to our enemy. And because of that, our enemy tries to pull that focus away from us. And he's often very successful. He causes us to be distracted by the trinkets of the world. And we can find our lives so um, focused on those kinds of things that we lose a focus on the great truth that Jesus is, is coming back. When we discount that, when some people deny that, we lose our Christian hope. Because that is the great hope that we have as believers. And so because of that, the devil's always trying to, to push uh, false teaching around the people of God to cause us to be distracted. Just like it is in our day, and we have that today, it was the same in Peter's day. And in the passage that we're looking at today, in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, uh, verses 1 through 10, Peter is, a matter of fact, in verses 3 and 4, you can see it show, that shows us what the church was facing, these false teachers. Peter calls them scoffers. They were mocking the truth of Christ's return. They were, as Peter says, walking after their own lusts, after their own designs. They deny Christ's return because they hate the thought of divine retribution. When Jesus Christ returns, he is going to set the record straight. All wrongs are going to be made right. If you're a false teacher, you're not happy about that. And they, they certainly were not. They want to be able to practice their own sinful lifestyles without any thought of repercussion or future punishment. And so they were taunting the church with this question, where is the promise of his coming? And they would argue that since the father, since the patriarchs, Everything just keeps on going, just like normal. There are no signs that God is doing anything in the world today. That would be their argument. And so when Peter is writing here in chapter 3, he's writing to fortify these believers in this great hope, the certainty of the second coming. And that's the title of my message this morning. And as we read the text today, I want you to just notice how Peter is encouraging these believers with the great truth that Jesus is coming again. And I want you to think about the Apostle Peter. Peter, um, tradition says, he died 
around A.D. 67. Second Peter is dated in A.D. 67. So this, these are some of the very last words of the Apostle Peter before his life is uh, taken and he is uh, promoted to heaven. So listen to what he says as he's trying to encourage this church when the false teachers are trying to push off and distract them about the second coming. So he writes this in 2 Peter 3 verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. But is long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So you can see Peter's writing, and he's trying to encourage these people. No, 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 don't be distracted by these scoffers. And as he's writing here in these verses, he's giving them certain proofs that Jesus is going to return. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Five proofs about the certainty of the second coming. Jesus is coming back. And let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have told us. You've not only inspired this word, you have preserved it. It is forever settled in heaven. And we thank you that now, centuries, many centuries later, from the time that your spirit breathed out these words, we can open up these words and we can believe them with confidence that they are true. 
and that they guide us and govern the way that we live and adjust our thinking when we get distracted by other things. And so, God, this morning we pray that your spirit would do that. We pray that you would encourage us with the great truth that you are coming again. And we pray that our hearts would be warmed and filled with gratitude. That we would live out our lives in an anticipation that you are returning. And so we pray that you would guide us today. May your spirit help us to understand truth. I am not sufficient for this. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our hearts, that you would govern my mouth and guide my thinking today. May it be in accordance with the truth of your word. And may our hearts be pointed to you. And may anyone who is here who is uncertain of their eternal state, may they be drawn to you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first proof that I want you to notice. You see it in the first couple of verses here. When we think about the certainty of the second coming, here's the first proof. The Word of God defines it. This is not some notion of men. This is the Word of God that is defining the truth that Jesus is coming back. That there is going to be what the Scripture calls the day of the Lord. And you see that. Peter is speaking here in this first verse, and he's writing to stir up the believers, to disturb their complacency, and to give them a sense of urgency as they are living out their spiritual life. And he's reminding them of the words of God. The word pure that you see there in verse 1, it means sincere. And it's referring to this pure mind, this mind that the Holy Spirit has, has given them at salvation that is free from, from worldly contamination. It's pure and it's pure thinking. It's thinking along the lines of the scripture that hasn't been contaminated. And then he tells them in verse 2, he's referring to the words of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And is reminding them, as you see, that you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, the Old Testament, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord in Scripture. He's referring there to both the Old and the New Testament. And, and, and both Testaments speak many times about the return of Christ, about the second coming. In Isaiah chapter 66, if you're taking notes, you can just jot Isaiah 66 verses 15 and 16. The scripture says there, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire and by his word will the Lord plead with all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. And then the prophet Malachi in Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3. For behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. 
And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow as calves of the stall. And he shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this saith the Lord of hosts. So here's Isaiah, the beginning of the Old Testament prophets, and Malachi, the end. And the theme there that you see in, in these uh, prophets and throughout the scripture is again, God's coming wrath at the second coming of Christ. The New Testament is filled with references to the second coming Matter of fact, 23 of the 27 New Testament books explicitly refer to the Lord's return. And of the four that don't, Galatians and 2 John both allude to the return of Christ. And so you only have Philemon and 3 John that make no mention or allusion to it at all. So... In the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there's about 300 instances in which Christ's apostles are referring to the second coming. And then listen to these words from the Apostle John in Revelation 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. Upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of of lords. We are told repeatedly in the Bible, and that's what Peter was telling these uh, uh, believers here, being distracted by false teachers. He's reminding them, no, 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 listen, the Old Testament prophets, we the apostles have been speaking about these, these uh, things. We're told repeatedly in the Bible that Jesus is returning. We are not told when he is returning. Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So you and I, as we sit here today, just like Peter was trying to encourage these people, despite all of the, the false teaching to the contrary, Jesus is coming back, and the Word of God defines that for us. And that is proof in itself. What God has spoken and His Word is forever settled in heaven, that is sufficient for us. 
But there's more proof that you and I can see here. We can be sure of the Lord's second coming because the Word of God defines it and it does so repeatedly. But also, secondly, the providence of God defends it. The Scripture defines it, but then Peter is reminding them that along with the Scripture, God's providence in the world is defending this truth. In verse 4 that we mentioned, these false teachers were arguing, where's the promise of His coming? Things haven't changed ever since our forefathers, the patriarchs, ever since they died off. What's different? Things just keep going on just like they've gone on for years and for years and for years and years. And you're telling us something is different? God's not at work in the world today. What these false teachers were saying is something that we call today uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. It's the thought that there might be a divine creation. Maybe God has set things in motion. Maybe He did. But God has not, He does not, He cannot intervene in the natural processes of the universe. Uniformitarianism. It may have gotten started... But God is not and does not and cannot change anything about it. There are certain processes in place. And this is just the way the world works. Cause and effect. These are all natural things. This is the way the Lord works. God's not do, or the, the world works. God is not involved in it at all. Uniformitarianism. Of course, the biblical view of the universe is that God actually did create it and He ordained those natural causes. There are certain things in the way that God has created His world. There are certain causes and certain effects that all are designed by natural laws created by God as He made that creation. And we believe that. We believe that God did create the world in six days and we do believe that he intervenes dramatically in the world. And the flood is a good example of that. God did dramatically intervene in his world. Uniformitarianism says, well, God may have created it. May have created it. But he's not doing anything in the world today. And what Peter is arguing here with these people is, wait a minute, the worlds were formed by the word of God. And there was a thing known as the flood. Whereby, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So when these false teachers are saying, where is the promise of his coming God's not involved in the world at all today. And Peter is reminding them, wait a minute. The, world, the worlds were formed by the word of God. And God still intervenes in his world. There was this thing called the flood and by it the world perished. He's speaking of them. 
of course, in the days of Noah. And those who hold this uniformitarianism belief, they're just simply ignorant of the truth of the Scripture. And Peter says that they are willingly ignorant. That means that they have purposely shut their eyes to the truth. And then Peter just notes these monumental events. By the word of God, the heavens came into being. And as I mentioned, we believe it was in six consecutive 24-hour days. We have a young earth. We don't have a earth that's billions and billions of years old. And God formed the earth the way Peter is saying it, out of the water and in the water. God is forming that. One commentary said this, he collected the upper waters into something like a vapor canopy around the entire earth and the lower waters into underground reservoirs, rivers, lakes, and seas. And then on the third day, he separated the land from the water allowing the dry earth to appear. And then in verse 6, you see, it speaks of a second event that these false teachers deny. And again, I mentioned that, the flood. They argue against that. And, and Peter is reminding them, no, God actually does intervene in the world. The creation that he has made. And that doesn't mean... That he will never again enact a global judgment. He's not going to destroy the earth by flood again. He's promised that. But that doesn't mean there'll be no global judgment at some point down the road. Matter of fact, verse 7 tells us the present heavens and the earth by the same word are kept in store. I love those words. Peter's just reminding these people the world was formed by the word of God. And God intervened in that world in the flood. And by the very same word, the word of God, the worlds are kept in store. And they are being reserved for God's purposes. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The present world system will not be consumed by water, but by flames, as Peter is saying. God's reserving the universe for the judgment of ungodly men, not of believers. So the word of God defines the certainty of the second coming. The providence of God defends that. Yes, God is working in his world. And then the third proof, the timing of God. Disguises it. And that's part of the challenge for us. The timing of God disguises the second coming. We don't know when. 
And when things just move on and on and on, day after day, week after month, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, we can lose our focus. And I think I fear too often that I personally, I often lose my focus about this. Because life just moves on. And it keeps on moving on. And so the timing can disguise us. And then just like it did with the the timing can disguise the the certainty of the second coming. And just like it was in Peter's day. And Peter's reminding of them. He's he's talking to them about the timing. When he tells them in verse 8. You see that when he says, but beloved, don't forget this. Don't be ignorant about this. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Peter's paraphrasing Psalm 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. You see, God's perspective that Peter is reminding them, God's perspective on time is so different from your perspective and my perspective. A moment is no different than an eon in God's timetable. There are huge differences in our timetable, but not in God's. And that's what he's reminding them of this morning. To God, eons pass as moments do. And what may seem like a long time to you and me as believers, a thousand years. I mean, you think back a thousand years. That seems like so, so, so far back. Hardly any of us remember things. None of us, of course, were living. But what we've read about in those years, a thousand years ago. Some would come up with some things, but most of us would struggle to even remember what was going on in the world a thousand years ago. But it's like a moment to to God. And that's what Peter is reminding them. When these false teachers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? Nothing's happening. God isn't working today. And Peter's reminding them, wait a minute. Jesus is coming back. And don't let the timing, God's timetable, confuse you. It somewhat disguises it for us. Because we don't think on that same kind of timetable. But he is returning. And then fourthly, verse 9. The mercy of God delays it. Jesus is coming back. The word of God defines that. He is coming back. The providence of God defends that truth. We see God interacting in in his, his world. The timing of God disguises it. But Peter's reminding them it's the very mercy of God that is delaying it. And this is probably the most familiar verse in this passage to us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Instead, he is long-suffering to usward, 
He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter's emphasizing here that the reason Christ's return is not immediate is because God is patient with sinners. God is not indifferent. He is not powerless. He is not distracted. Instead, it's the very exact opposite. God is very involved in his world. He is the powerful one who created it and he can intervene in it in any moment. But it's his mercy. It's his patience. It's his long suffering. He is not slack. He is not late. Concerning that promise. Instead, he's long-suffering. Long-suffering is a compound word in the Greek text. And it has the idea of a large or a great anger. It has the idea that God has the capacity for storing up anger and wrath before he's going to pour it all out in judgment one day. He's patient. You know people and I know people that are not patient people. They don't have the capacity for storing up things. But God is long-suffering. He's not overlooking. He never overlooks sin. Every sin has to be judged. Because God is a holy God. But that anger, that wrath against sin, and God only has wrath against sin, and always against sin. It's just being stored up. And one day it will come crashing down at God's timetable. Right now, he's just being patient. And you may be one here today, and God is delaying for your sake. He's being patient because of you. He has been trying to draw you to himself. He's put in front of you people who have given you a little gospel leaflet that told you that Jesus loves you and that Jesus died for your sins. And you've said, well, that's a good thought, but I'll think about that later. And then God sent in his mercy somebody else along the way to tell you that good news. Or somehow you wandered into a service somewhere and you heard that good news again. And God in his mercy and kindness and patience with you has just storing up his wrath. He has wrath against your sin. And one day it's all going to come crashing down. And apart from you acknowledging and receiving God's answer for your sin, which is Jesus. It's God's only answer for sin is Jesus. And if you don't receive that answer and accept that answer, you will endure for all eternity the wrath of God against sin, against your sin. An awful place the Bible calls hell. But God doesn't want you to go there. He is not willing. Did you you see what Peter tells these people? He is not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. And in that loving, merciful desire, he is so patient. 
He's just storing up wrath against sin. But it won't be forever. In the justice of God, wrath, the wrath of God is going to fall one day. But the mercy of God is delaying. And then the final thought, very quickly, the judgment of God demands it. You hear what Peter says to these people? The last part of our passage. But the day of the Lord will come, he says. The judgment of God is going to demand it. It'll come as a thief in the night. But notice the judgment. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This day is coming. The day of the Lord in the Bible is a phrase that signifies God miraculously intervening in the human history and he's going to intervene for one purpose. It's going to be for the purpose of judgment that's going to fall on the world. It culminates in this final judgment of the wicked on earth and the destruction of the present universe. And it's going to arrive like a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected. And it's going to be disastrous for everyone who is unprepared. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Heaven and earth will pass away as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 and 35. It will be with a great noise. The sound of the disintegrating universe. It's going to be deafening is the way the scripture presents it. The elements that refers to the basic atomic components of the universe. All of the elements of the universe. The heat's going to be so powerful that the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Everything in the material realm is going to be consumed by the power of God. So mockers can mock and scoffers can scoff. But the mockers and the scoffers have a short time. Their time will come to an end. One day Christ is going to return. And Peter is reminding these people of that. He's going to return. God's judgment is going to be displayed. The present universe is going to be destroyed. A new heaven and a new earth are going to replace it. And in that place, the righteous will live with God forever. And every lost person will face the just consequences of their sin. So for you and me today, Jesus said, I'm coming back. We don't know when. So it's important that you and I live with that expectation. That he is coming back. And one day he's going to set all of the record right. In God's time. But God tells you and me that until then we are supposed to be living with that expectation. And the early church was so aware of that. 
as I mentioned, they would greet one another that way. Lord, come quickly. I don't, I, I don't think you and I often think along those lines. I think we can get so distracted. And we need messages like this from time to time just to call our attention back. To call us back to focus on what we should be focusing on. There's a whole world out there that is screaming a completely different message to us. That is vying for our attention and far too often it has it. And God just uses these passages in his word and messages like this from time to time just to call us back to our focus. There is a world out there that's lost. And that God in his mercy has drawn you and I to himself and given us new life through Christ and wants us to be involved in that world. Letting them know that God is a merciful God and he sent Jesus to be their savior. But one day he's, he's coming back. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for truth. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the great hope that we have. Forgive us, God, when we've gotten so bogged down in this world. So focused on trinkets. And we pray that you'll use this time for every one of us who is a believer today. May you use this time to refocus our thoughts that you are coming back, that it could be today that you rapture your children up. And so, God, we pray that you will help us to be faithful. Help us to walk with an expectation that you are returning and help us to live in that light today. And dear God, we do thank you for your patience and we pray for anyone here today Maybe this is their first time in church or they've been in church for years and years but have never come face to face with the reality of heaven and hell and the great love that you have for sinners. Oh God, we pray that you would draw these people to yourself today. By your mercy, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.